It's great to be in worship with you this morning. It's great to be back in the pulpit, and thanks to Steve for a few weeks off. We are still in the midst of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We've got a few more weeks of that, and then we'll have a little interim few weeks, and then we'll hit the fall ministry season looking at the book of Colossians for about ten weeks. So you can be looking forward to that. We're looking this morning at Deuteronomy 5, and particularly the last verse in the bulletin, you shall not steal. But let me read the whole passage. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And you shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we assemble this morning with a variety of expectations. Some of us are sick this morning physically, mentally, and we need healing, and we want you to bring that healing. Father, others of us have questions that we need answers to. Why did this pain enter my life? Why did my loved one depart from me? We need you to answer. Father, others of us are anxious about the future, anxious about our job anxious about conflict at work, and we need your rest. Father, many of us are dealing with conflict in our souls, conflict with our loved ones, and we need you to reconcile those situations. Father, would you begin this morning to pull up the root of self-reliance? Would you do away with the seed of self-love in our hearts that's buried deep and protected well Father, I pray that you would help us to turn from our self-concern. Though many of the concerns we have are so valid and we want you to enter into them, I pray that first of all that you would teach us to ask what you want us to ask, to see what you want us to see, to hear what you want us to hear this morning. In this simple passage, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand how faithful you are, how loving you are. Help us to see at the root that the gospel is proclaimed, even in the book of Deuteronomy. And we pray that we would see it, that we would seat our lives upon it, and that we would live it out today and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know that we have entered into the realm of urban farming, not urban architect, our, our agriculture yet, but a little urban farming and that we have gotten five chicks that we bought recently. Now, I'm going to let you guess who named these chicks. We have five chicks and six members of our family, and uh, one of them uh, didn't get to name one of the chickens, unfortunately. But there are five, and there's Getty, there are, there's Killer, there's Thunder. These are chickens, right? Hens. Killer, Thunder, Cutie, and then there's Glass Chick, named by our four-year-old, Elliot. Now, I don't know where that came from in his little four-year-old mind, but he's been committed to it because the first Glass Chick we got turned out to be a rooster, and so we had to send that one back, and hoping not to break his heart, we bought another one that was of the same breed, almost the same size, and that one was named Glass Chick. And it died about two days later. So now we're on our third glass chick. It's a different breed. It doesn't look anything like it. But Elliot has been committed to calling it glass chick. I'm not sure where that comes from, but he loves it. Now, 
Many of you and many Portlanders ever, uh, around the city have joined this movement of urban agriculture. Why do I keep calling it urban architecture? Urban agriculture and urban farming. And it's a movement having to do with a number of things. One is shortening the supply line between the food at its source and the food on your table. Secondly, the ethics of how animals and how soils are treated, that that has become more important in our day. And also the question of how one's individual consumption affects another's choices and options. Foundational question, it seems to me, is does the way I eat, or backing up even further, do do the lifestyle choices that I make result in taking away choices from other people? Now, some of this movement has to do with wanting better food, wanting better eggs. And our hens are now laying eggs, and they're quite, quite good. Uh, And some of it has to do with wanting a few more pets around the house for your kids to play with. But at its most altruistic moment, it does have to do with this question of taking. Are we exploiting others by the choices that we make? Are we taking from them certain choices and certain options of life by the way that we choose to live our life? Today we're looking at this eighth commandment of you shall not steal. And stealing is essentially taking property, taking choices, taking lives out of someone else's hand and putting them into your possession. And what God is calling each of us to in this commandment is to move away from this idea of taking, to stop being takers and join a community of givers. We're going to peel back this short little verse in three ways. One, just what is stealing? How do we define it? Why is it wrong? And then what are, we to do about, what are we to do about it? So the what and the how, or the what and the why, and then the how. How do we stop stealing? Now, first of all, what is stealing? Now, I don't want to insult your t- intelligence here by doing a whole sermon on four words. It may not seem like that complex of a passage or of a question. Is there, any real, is there really any question of what is stealing? But we've been having a national debate over the last three years about this question, about business ethics, about the recession and the housing crisis, and was it caused by just a confluence of a lot of unfortunate events that happened to collide at the same moment, or is it something deeper? Was there greed involved? Was there graft involved? Was there theft involved in the business practices of banks or of people and owners of homes? Was it a breakdown of business ethics? Now, maybe you've heard the story of the shopkeeper who is teaching his son business ethics. And he says, son, suppose a customer comes in to the business in a hurry, and they pay for something, and I give them change for a 10. And then as they walk out the door, I realize that she's given me a $100 bill rather than a $10 bill. Now, here's the question, son, of business ethics. Do I tell my partner? It's a little more complicated as we wrestle with business ethics and ethics in life and what is truth and honesty and what is lying, what is stealing and taking. And they give whole classes in business school about business ethics. So it is a rather complex question. Now, as we read the command in the larger context of Deuteronomy, and as we see how Jesus as a Jewish rabbi understands this command, there's a deeper application beyond just 
don't steal, that's going to cut right through each of us in this room. Now, let's look at just three types of stealing. First of all, there's aggressive theft. This is forcibly or creatively taking something that belongs to someone else. And there can be blue-collar or white-collar versions of this. Teddy Roosevelt says, A man who has never gone to school may steal a freight car, but a man with a university education can steal the whole railroad. Could be aggressive theft, one who hides in the shadows to overpower someone and violently take something from that individual. We call that a mugging. That's a blue-collar version of aggressive theft. Or it could be more white-collar, educated theft. It could be identity theft. It can be bait-and-switch advertising. It could be CEOs hiding obligations and debts on their balance sheets to make their company look more profitable for shareholders. In general, white-collar crime causes much more widespread havoc and pain, but it generally has fewer punitive consequences. And the more creative and risky the theft, the more exciting it is. In fact, it's a much more interesting story when we hear of these educated people that make their life by graft and by stealing. In fact, some of my favorite movies are the heist films that cause you to to rethink who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. And at the end of the movie, you end up cheering for the bad guy to get away with the crime. There's aggressive theft that is forcibly or creatively taking. And then there's subtle theft that is keeping what belongs to someone else. Maybe it's withholding work that you're paid to do, either by laziness or just simply not trying hard to be thoughtful and creative at work. I had a friend of mine who, in the summer during college, he worked at an auto parts distributorship. And what this was was basically a conveyor belt and then you know rows and rows of auto parts. And so his job was eight hours a day to drive a forklift and go to the, go to the, the racks and pull down a pallet, pull down a part, and bring it to the conveyor belt. And so when he starts, he wants to make a good impression, and he's going to see how many deliveries of parts he can make in an eight-hour period. And so after the first day, unfortunately, the coworkers find out about this, and they catch on that he's a pretty hard worker. And so what do they do? Instead of ramping up their gain, they take their forklifts, and they park them at the end of the aisle when he's in the middle and turn it off and pull out the key. And he's trapped there for the whole day. And the message is, You're not to do eight hours of work. You're to do two or three hours of work, but stretch it out over eight hours. It can be subtle. We're withholding work that we're paid to do. Isn't that theft? Or conversely, from the top down, keeping wages from workers who are unfairly underpaid. Or products that are designed intentionally to fail in the near term so the consumer will have to then go buy another one. Ideas, keeping from giving credit to someone else who has generated an idea and ought to have credit or remuneration. And in the digital world, hasn't it become much more complex? Who owns the ones and zeros on your hard drive? Who in here, I won't ask for a show of hands, has videos or music on their hard drive that you haven't paid the other person for you to own it? There's subtle theft. There's keeping what belongs to someone else. And then there's hoarding theft. And this is where it gets really complicated and where it probably is going to touch on each of us in the room. Hoarding theft is stealing from those in need by keeping too much. It's withholding generosity from others. It's selfishly holding on to your resources 
in the midst of knowing that there are other people in need. And Christians, if you, no matter what your convictions are on tithing, certainly there is an, there is an instance where we are stealing from God. There's a whole chapter in the Bible about robbing from God, about holding on to our resources instead of giving them back to the temple in the Old Testament, to the church in the New Testament. And we see in this regard that the opposite of thievery isn't just not stealing. It's generosity. It's seeing your resources through the lens of those around you and the needs that you see in your life. Hoarding has the attitude toward material possessions that runs very counter to this idea of giving and generosity. It says, I'm going to grab all I can get out of this life and out of this world. Instead, what the Bible is calling us to to do, and what we'll see as we explore this passage a little bit more, it's not grab all that I can get. It's give all that I can possibly give. Now, those are some item, that's an itemization, a list of what is stealing. It's a little bit more complex. We need to, to dive down deep into our lives and the way that we manage our resources and manage our time before we can say that I have, I've been faithful to this command just by not aggressively taking something that doesn't belong to me. There could be subtle ways that you're stealing. There could be ways that you're stealing from God or from others by hoarding too much. Now, why is it wrong? If that's what stealing is, why is it wrong? Well, there's a terrible social cost to stealing, and depending on the type of product that you buy, there's a corruption tax, a corruption cost that's built in to the cost of that product that's based upon the worker's laziness, embezzlement, intentional waste, payoffs, and depending on the product, there's a lot of that. A percentage of what you buy is built, uh, the cost is built in based on corruption. And there's a lot of biblical reasons for why it's wrong to steal. One is that it dehumanizes the person that you're stealing from. It turns them, instead of a a person who is made in the image of God, it turns them into an object from which you can exploit for your own personal benefit. It turns them into a competitor. And it's also an assault on God's character, that God says, I am trustworthy, I am faithful, I am a good and loving and merciful king that will withhold nothing from you that you absolutely need. And so stealing is an assault on his character. It is saying, God, I do not trust you to be the God that you've described yourself to be. Number of reasons, but the primary one that I want to dial down into is the one that comes up in this passage in Deuteronomy. The reason that it's wrong is that it's enslaving. That stealing is harmful, not just to the victim, but to the perpetrator, to the thief as well. I included the preamble in our passage to remind us of what is the foundation for these commands. Why should we follow them? And he says, I am the God who rescued you out of slavery. These commands are the means by which you enjoy and you experience that liberation. The sins that are listed are not simply wrong they're prisons. They're prisons. Stealing is a prison. As much as you think that if I have that, I will be happy, it turns you inward. It turns you into a shell of a person. Stealing is evidence of bondage, a lack of freedom. Why not steal? Because God says, I've liberated you out of Egypt. I have liberated you. I've given you salvation. Do not steal. 
the thief is in bondage to the object of their affection. They can't resist it. They've staked their happiness upon having that particular object. Stealing, we must see, begins in the heart. It begins with wanting something too much. It begins with coveting something that someone else has. It begins with envying another person's station in life. And what we'll see in two weeks as we look at coveting in general, that the point of this passage is really to get at the heart. Because if you refrain from stealing, you haven't necessarily fulfilled the spirit of the law. Because if you covet something, if you want something, if you envy and you refrain from stealing, it may be because just you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to get caught. And so have you really fulfilled the law if you don't steal, but then you covet? You want very deeply. Our New Testament passage this morning says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and what? pierced themselves with many griefs. Money in itself is amoral, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money may be a near idol in our life, but no one really loves the actual money. No one, you know, plays with the coins because they love the coins. Maybe someone does, but for the most part, you love money because it gives you access to other things. Money is the near idol, but the far idol may be that you want admiration, that you want freedom from want or worry, that you want comfort, that you want power. Those are the things that are really driving you, not money itself. Money is the near idol. Those things are the far idols. Money gives you access to those things. And the love of money, the worship of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. Our money flows towards the things that we most want. And we, when we have lots of it, then we get lots of what we want. Money is in its own evil, but it's a feeder of many evils. And what's the result of pursuing wealth, of taking and grabbing as much as we can? Maybe it's an alleviation of certain types of anxiety, and we ought to be honest about this. It's much better to have more money at the end of the month than to go into debt over basic necessities. Or as Woody Allen says, money is better than poverty if only for financial reasons. Certainly that's true. Certainly we don't want to be worried and anxious about will our money run out before the calendar, the end of the month does. But those who pursue wealth as a goal in and of itself, what does the Apostle Paul say? They pierce themselves with many griefs. Remember, the point of the command is to release you from slavery. And what Paul is saying is that what looks like freedom, having more, is a false sense of security. And it's a false sense of security that will utterly tyrannize you, and it will control you. You will overwork, you will neglect your family, you will neglect your friends, you will neglect your own body and your health, you will neglect your church because you're pursuing the hope that is found in money. And in order to get money, you have to work, most, most people, harder and harder and harder to get it. And maybe you then begin to cut corners. Maybe you don't pay your workers as much. Maybe you pull a little bit out of the kitty. Maybe you fudge a bit on your taxes. Maybe you take legal risks that before you couldn't have imagined taking because you worship money. 
You love money and what it represents, and you will have it at any cost, even if you want, if, even stealing. Now, what do we do about it? How do we begin to uproot that practice, that application of stealing that really, at the bottom, is a hope that is placed in money? Let me give you just a couple of simple things. One, as we said earlier, is that we have to see that this is an issue of the heart. That Jesus says that you cannot serve God and money. That you have a choice to make today, all of us here. You cannot serve both. You cannot worship both because they are pointing in two opposite directions. They both say, place your hope in me, place your trust, place your hope for security in me. And we have to say, either I'm going to pursue money and what it promises, or I'm going to pursue God, and I'm going to pursue Jesus and what he promises. And we have to ask God to point that out to us and help us make that decision to say, who is our master? Who is our taskmaster? Who is our Lord? Who is the one through which we make our decisions? And to say, God, would you change the orientation of my heart from it's mine and I will give a little bit if I have to or if I feel really guilty to it is God's and every resource that I have belongs to him and that he has entrusted it to me in order to invest it in his church, in his kingdom, and in the benefit of other people. That in fact, he is asking all of us to join him in bringing his healing presence into the world through the spending and the investment of your resources. That's not an easy thing. We have to wrestle with that, and we need God's help to say, God, change my heart. Help me, because I am so apt to put my hope in this false sense of security, even though I see many people who have it all and are so unhappy. There's still that promise that I want to cling to because it's tangible, it's material, it's easy to grab hold of. Help me, Lord, instead cling to your promises, to believe them in my daily life. If we don't do business at the heart level, no behavioral change is going to stick. So first of all, practical steps. What do we do about it? We have to deal with our heart. Secondly, we have to ask, what is enough? How much is enough? The writer of Proverbs 30 is praying. He says, God, give me neither poverty nor wealth, because if I'm poor, then I may envy the rich and put my hope in being rich. If I'm rich, then my wealth will tyrannize me and I'll never think about something else. That's a loose paraphrase of the passage, by the way. God, make me not either too rich or too poor, because in both senses, I know my heart and I know that I can dishonor God in both of those circumstances. Give me enough. So the question then becomes, what is enough? How much is enough? And each of us here are going to answer this question in a little bit different ways. John Newton, the famous Puritan writer, writer of Amazing Grace, he says he recommends in his own life and his practice is to divide your spending into necessities and conveniences and luxuries. Necessities, conveniences, and luxuries. And after necessities, anything that you spend on conveniences or luxuries, that you also then give a dollar away. So if you spend a dollar on a luxury, you give a dollar away to someone in need or to your church or to some type of mercy ministry. Now, he doesn't say don't have the luxuries. Don't have the conveniences. Certainly, it's better to have a a dishwasher than have to do it on on your own all the time. 
It's nothing wrong with having a dishwasher. It's, again, at the level of how much do I love this thing? How much hope, how much security, how much comfort does it give me? And am I thinking way too much on that? And one of the ways, one of the correctives that John Newton gives is to simply give a dollar for everything you spend on conveniences or luxuries. Be boldly, gener- be boldly generous as much as you are rich in your enjoyment of things of this world. First of all, deal with the heart. Secondly, ask, how much is enough? And then thirdly, live in community, in a diverse community, because we all tend to overspend on ourselves, and we need people who we're closely linked with to help us answer the question of how much is enough. And if we wall ourselves off in our own little socioeconomic sphere, we'll never ask the question Uh, in a deep way of, is this a necessity? Many more things that are conveniences and luxuries will become necessities because everyone else has them. And so be a part, not just attend, but live in a diverse community that causes you to question your own expenses and your own spending. Fourthly, test him. This is one of the one of the only places in Scripture, not Deuteronomy, but Malachi 3, which I alluded to earlier, where God asks his people to test him in something. Do you know what it is? It's with giving. And of course, as Steve said earlier, that we don't give because we expect this great material reward, that God is going to repay us materially for any sacrifice that we give away. But he does say, I will bless you richly if you will give If you will give generously, I will be faithful to you. I will give you out of my abundant storehouses. Test him in in this. You see, money appeals to our desire for something very concrete and very tangible because you can measure it. You can look at your bank account and you can know exactly how much hope you have. You can know exactly how much security that you have. It's much easier to do that than to look at God's promises and to think in an abstract way of how he might be faithful in a future circumstance. What if this happens and how would he live out that promise in that future hypothetical event? And many of us are quick to look to tangible things and concrete things because we've never allowed him to move in a, in a hypothetical way. We've never allowed him to move into a situation because we've controlled things so well by our money and by our resources. And that's why God says, test me here, because you don't know what it's like for me to show up in an event because you've always controlled things so well. Be risky here. Give more than you think you should and see what God does. Maybe you eat a little less richly for the rest of the month, but test and see whether God will show up as he promises. It is a spiritual devotional issue, and many of us are very unhealthy spiritually because we've controlled our lives so well that God hasn't been able to show up in the way that he wants to in our lives. It's an issue of the heart We've got to ask how much is enough, living in a diverse community, test him. And then finally, we've got to see that the gospel alone is the opposite of theft. The gospel alone is the opposite of stealing. We've got to move beyond changing our relationship with things and money to changing our relationship with God himself. 
The gospel alone is the opposite of theft. Did you hear in the passage of the New Testament? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You have to want to stop stealing. You have to want to turn your heart away from money in order to do that. And the only way you can do it is when the thing that you want most is absolutely free, is absolutely without cost. What the gospel is, what the promise of salvation is, is an undeserved, unearned gift. You're taking something that is not yours to take. And God says, steal from me. Take from me. Your greatest desires can be found in me and in my salvation, and I give it to you liberally. Take hold of it. The gospel is an undeserved, unearned gift. Jesus, you see, hates theft. He hates stealing. And we see at his most angry point in the gospels, he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers because what are they doing? It's not simply that they're transacting business in the temple. What are they doing? Where they're doing it is important. They are doing it in the Gentiles' court. They are stealing the place of worship from the Gentiles. And so Jesus comes in there angry at them and overthrows the tables. He hates theft and he hates stealing. And then what happens at the end of his life? He's crucified between two thieves. The word for stealing in the Hebrew has an idea of fraud. It has an idea of secrecy attached to it. The thief next to Jesus comes clean. He gives up his secrets and he says, Jesus, I am a thief. You have no right to be crucified, but I am a thief. He brings out his sin. He brings out his theft. He owns up to it. And what does Jesus say to him? You will be with me today in paradise. Thieves like you and like me are not without without hope when Jesus is near. The gospel is for thieves. Take hold of it. Steal it. Take something that you don't deserve And it is the greatest gift that is the greatest possession in the whole universe. And when you begin to see that, when that takes hold of your heart, all of these other little things that may be fun, that may be comfortable, that may be good in and of themselves become less attractive. They become less objects of worship. Eugene Peterson says, And I quote in the first, We can decide to live in response to the abundance of God and not under the dictatorship of our poor needs. We can decide to center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not in our own egos, which so greedily grab. One of the certain consequences of such a life is joy. You see, friends, God is not putting an arbitrary fence around your behavior to make sure that you don't have any fun He is saying, I have liberated you. I have sent my greatest possession to be yours. Take hold of it and see all other things through him. And in that, there is joy. In that, there is liberation. In that, there is freedom rather than tyranny. Friends, take hold of the gospel yet again as the promise that God holds out for you. Let's pray now. 
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have sent him, that he is free for the taking. Lord, I pray that each of us here this morning would take hold of him. Many of us have been Christians for many years, and we need to see this new. We need to see the hope and the promise of the gospel afresh. Others of us are still looking in from the outside, wondering if you could be all that you have said in the gospels. We pray that you would walk into our worlds in a new way as well. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus, that we would turn from the love of money, that we would love you, and we are absolutely dependent upon you to make that change in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.